We're going to be continuing through John chapter, or starting John chapter 7. We're continuing through the book of John. We are in chapter 7, but I don't know if you guys quite understand how excited I am about this chapter, okay? Because this chapter is a chapter that most people are going to read through and they're going to go, there is just nothing in there for me, preacher, okay? Jesus is going to the uh, Feast of Tabernacles. This has nothing to do with anything. Why is this chapter so important, okay? Well, once we start unpacking the first 10 verses of this chapter, you're going to see immediately that chapter 6, where Jesus was telling them how someone comes to the Son and how someone comes to believe in the Son, and then we get into chapter 7, where we have several groups of unbelieving people. We have several groups of people who think they know who Jesus is, who think they got him figured out and what he came to do figured out. So today we're beginning chapter 7, yet another chapter with people misunderstanding Christ, who, who he is, why he came. And it also exposes a biblical principle in this chapter, the idea that the only one of those people who can ever hear and receive the gospel are those who are spiritually alive, those who have spiritual ears. Jesus says in uh, another portion of John, let him who has ears, let him hear, right? In John, uh, Revelation chapter uh, 21, verse 17, what did he say? He, uh, is it 22? Is, 20, is there 22? Ver yes, 22, verse 17. Revelation 22, 17, where he says, let him who hears say come. Amen? Not everyone hears Christ. Not everyone actually hears the gospel. Jesus spoke to whole groups of people in the last chapter, and then none of them believed him. He looked right at them and said, you've seen, yet you don't believe. People go, well, you know, if they see all these miracles, well, then they'll believe. Or, or if they just hear the gospel one more time, if, they, if, they, if you just go preach to them one more time, pastor, and believe me, I will. But the problem is, without God moving on the heart of a person, not one person will ever look to Christ and be saved. God has to do a work in the heart. And in this chapter that we're meeting in this week, his own brothers do not believe in him. He who has spiritual ears will hear the truth and believe on him. A point that was thoroughly driven home in chapter 6. Amen? A point that was driven home in verse 44, verse 65. I mean, just throughout that chapter, understanding that all that the Father gives me will come to me. And he who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. But only... Those who my father draws will come to me. It's a tough saying, right? We've seen many already in the Gospel of John who did not understand who Jesus was. 
Think about Nicodemus. One of the wisest men in all of Israel knew the scriptures inside and out. He was not only a teacher in Israel, he was the teacher of Israel. That's the title that Jesus gave him. Jesus said, art thou the teacher of Israel and not know these things? John chapter 3. This Nicodemus knew that Jesus was a man sent from God. But what Nicodemus didn't know was that this man was God. He wasn't just a man sent from God. He was God. He is God in the flesh. Nicodemus had not yet come to this understanding. Amen. And there's many people that come to Christ with their own expectations, with their own ideas, with their own philosophy about what Jesus is, who Jesus is, and how he should work in their life. But the problem is, if you come to Jesus that way, you're coming to him just like those men in chapter 6 who ate the loaves and the fish. They filled their belly, sure enough. They saw the miracle. Sure enough. But when they came to him, they were not coming in faith because they saw him as the Messiah. They were coming to just get their belly full again. And we have a whole generation of Christians who want what God can do for them. But they don't want God. They want, they want God to heal them. But they don't want to follow God. They want God to fix their marriage. But they don't want to live for God. They want God to fix their church, but they don't want to pray and seek God's face. They want God to fix all the problems in America, but they don't want to believe that this God commands you to repent, to believe, and to follow Him. They want a pity, patty, patty cake Jesus that isn't the real thing. They want this watered down, washed out, feminized Jesus that just loves everybody for absolutely no good reason and doesn't expect anything of them. The problem is that ain't the biblical Jesus. The biblical Jesus was a man, and he preached like a man, and he taught like a man, and he had expectations even of those who followed him. How do I know this? Because John or Luke chapter 11 says that unless you are willing to renounce all that you have and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Period. End of story. That's the Jesus of the Bible. Amen. We want this pity patty, patty cake Jesus that, that coddles everybody with this loving embrace and pats them down. And, oh, you're all right just how you are. Now, Jesus does want you to come as you are, but you can't come however you want. You can't come expecting one thing without taking the other thing. Matter of fact, if you're only coming for the bread and the fish, you will not get eternal life. If you're not coming to repent of your sins, if you're not coming to confess Him as Lord, if you're not coming to lay down your life and take up the life of Christ, you are not saved. Period. Jesus didn't come down here. To do all these fanciful things you hear preachers talking about on TV. He didn't come down here to make sure you got a Maserati. He didn't, make, he didn't come down here to make sure you had the best house. Or the best car. Or the best life now. 
Matter of fact, if you're living your best life now, you might as well just get over it and enjoy it now because you're going to split hell wide open because it's not about your best life now. It's about your eternal life then. When we go where he is, when he comes to get us and take us to where he is, that's our best life now. That's the gospel. That's what he said he came to do. That's what the angel Gabriel said he was coming to do. Matthew chapter 1, remember? He said, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. We got all these fake preachers on TV talking about, oh, God's all, God wants to bless you, and God wants to give you this, and God wants to give you that, and God wants to make you wealthy, and God, have you noticed that all these false prophets only prophesy good things? They only say, oh, God wants to make you great. He wants to put you at the top. He wants to make your name great. Matter of fact, they'll tell you God's trying to do a work in you, and if you just... Send me some money. God will bless you. It's always a caveat. You got to earn this thing somehow. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus didn't come down here to even make a name for himself. Jesus said, I've come to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. I've come to glorify the Father. Matter of fact, when he's praying, he says, Father, I have glorified you to my disciples. Now glorify me with the glory that I had with you in the beginning. God isn't coming down here to bless you, to make you have a good name, to lift up your ministry, to lift up your name, to lift up your stuff. He's coming down here to lift up the life of Christ. The death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ is the gospel. And if that's not what you came to Christ for, you came for the wrong reason. You come through a different door. And Jesus said, I'm the way. I'm the door. And if any man comes in by any other door, he's a thief and a robber. There's only one door. There's only one way. There's only one man that can say it's Jesus Christ. And if you come to him with any other expectation of other than, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a sinner in desperate need of being saved. I see myself now, God, as who I am, desperately wicked, vile. I see you as you truly are, holy and righteous and completely perfect. And I have sinned against you. And you throw yourself upon the mercies of Christ. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus came to do. He didn't come to do all these things that these TV preachers tell you he came to do. I can challenge you nearly every time they so-called make a promise that God makes. If you go read that thing in context, it's talking about the atonement of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. That's what it's talking about. If that's not your understanding of the gospel, then you have a different gospel. And Paul says in Galatians chapter 1 that if I or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than the one you have received, let him be accursed. This thing is important. 
this book is important. People, people, oh, oh, these are all the promises of God. Yes, and they're all wrapped up in one person, Christ. You seek Christ, you don't seek promises. You seek him, you seek his face, you seek his forgiveness, you seek his righteousness. You don't seek all these things. The problem is we've turned the gospel into some money-making machine that promises moral, uh, mortal and, and temporal riches, temporal pleasures, earthly kingdoms. Problem is, Jesus said, store not up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and rust can eat, where thieves can break through and steal, but store up for yourself treasure." In heaven. Why? Because Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God the Father. And we're seated with him in heavenly places. And that if our faith and trust and hope is in him, one of these days there's going to be a great getting up morning. First Thessalonians says that, that the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Why? Because Jesus even said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, all I had to do is say a word. Even though his kingdom wasn't of this world, because he's the king of this world, he told Peter. He held Peter at the, in the garden when he whacked that guy's ear off. Do you not think that if I wanted to, I could call 10,000 angels down here right now? See, he could have. Could have obliterated sin, could have obliterated us, but he didn't. He had a plan, and the plan is Christ Amen. and him crucified. The, Christ is, the, the, the plan is Christ risen from the dead for your justification, for your redemption, for your eternal hope. And that's how we start this, with people totally misunderstanding this. We see how many people in John's gospel already who didn't understand who Jesus was or why he came. Today we see even that his own brothers had wrong ideas about him and as yet do not believe in him as the Christ. They do not believe in him as the savior of the world from their sins. All they wanted was the same thing all of Israel wanted deliverance from Rome. All his brothers cared about was he make himself known to everybody so that they could march into Jerusalem and tell them, here's our king. And Jesus wasn't dissuaded. He said, my time has not yet come. You see, there's some things going on in your life that you're trying to pray your way out of. But God has his own timetable. God is in charge of your life, not you. Right. Not you, not you, not you. God is. Amen. If you're in Christ, God's in charge of your, your life. And it's not your will, it's his will. Amen. It's not what you want, it's what he wants. It's right. not your way or your plan or your timing. But it's God's way, his plan and his timing. And that will only and always must be the Christian's attitude Amen. about living their life for Christ. 
Turn with me, if you will, and that's all free, by the way, because we didn't even open the scriptures yet. Turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 7. We're going to begin reading at verse 1. We're going to read to verse 10. After those things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hateth me, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. Ye, get, uh, go ye up unto the feast. I go not up yet unto the feast, for my time is not yet full come when he had said these words unto them he abode still in Galilee but when his brothers were gone up then he went up also unto the feast not openly but as it were in secret Amen. now many times people go why is he talking about him doing this in secret well there's a reason Jesus spoke in parables too Jesus didn't just speak in parables because it was the thing to do. Jesus spoke in parables because he said, it's only given to you to believe. It's not given to them. Those are his own words, not mine. When they asked him why he taught in parables, he said, it is given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. It is not given unto them. You see, this gift of God is a gift, and it is God's gift to give. That's a hard telling. Why do we think that's such a hard saying when, when we think God is, a, God is the one who gives the gift, and God's the one who has the right to give it or not to give it? This assumption that every person absolutely deserves it it's the problem because if we biblically understood where people are outside of Christ we understand that they're poor and wretched and lonely and naked and enemies of God despisers of God not lovers of good they're lost dead in sin and trespasses Romans 3 says that there is not one good no not one Nobody deserves heaven. Not one person in this room ever deserved heaven. Not one person that has ever lived on this planet deserves to go to heaven. Do you understand that? We don't have a right just because we're born to go to heaven. We're not even born with that right. How do I know that? John chapter 1. Turn with me to John 1. I'm going to show you that we're not born with this right. If we were, 
then everybody would go to heaven. John chapter 1 verse 12, which Kyle quoted, but as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believed on his name. And it makes a qualification in verse 13. Which were born not of blood, that means lineage, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, God has to give us even the right to go to heaven. None of us deserve it. None of us are going to go there just because we were born. You get there by faith in Christ alone. Period. There is no other way to heaven. There's no other avenue. There's no other door. It's through faith in Christ. To them that believed on his name gave he them the power or the right to become sons of God. So people ask all the time, aren't we all children of God? Every person on the planet is a child of God. No. Every person on the planet was made by God. Every person on the planet was fashioned with the image of God in them. That's true. But that doesn't make them sons of God. Faith in Christ is what makes you a child of God. Without faith in Christ, they are not children of God. Jesus looked at them and said, you are children of the devil. Because you don't believe in me. You seek to kill me. Those are Jesus' words, not mine. I know you had this pity patty, patty cake Jesus in your mind, but that's not the Jesus of Scripture, because Jesus said the Scripture looked right at him in John 10 and said, You don't hear my words because you're not of my sheepfold. My sheep hear my voice. If you don't hear his voice, it's because you're not his sheep. I would be praying earnestly that you heard the voice. How do I counsel a sinner to come to Christ? I pray that you earnestly hear the voice of Christ calling you to repentance, calling you to the cross, calling you to lay down your life, calling you to repentance and forgiveness of sin. That's what I pray for. Verse 1, we start, he says, In Galilee, Jesus stayed in Galilee because the Jews were seeking to kill him. If you need a refresher course of when this happened, it was the first time you went to Jerusalem. Turn with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5 verse 16 says this. And therefore the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Remember that? If you go ahead and skip forward a couple verses to verse 18, it says... Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because not only had he broken the Sabbath, but he also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. You see, people go, oh, Jesus didn't claim to be God. <laughs> Are you sure about that? Sure seems like that's why they wanted to kill him, right? I and my father are one. 
Before Abraham was, I am. Come on now. Jesus unequivocally claimed to be God. He proved his deity by raising himself from the dead. He said, no man takes my life. I lay my life down and I have power to pick it back up again. Amen. Why? Because I'm God. Because me and the Father are the same. Because I was in the beginning with God. I am God. John 1 1. In the beginning was God. The word, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. Amen. They wanted to kill Jesus because he broke the Sabbath in their mind. And we went through that and understood that he was breaking a man made st statute that was added onto the law. The law didn't prohibit any healing taking place on the Sabbath day. The law didn't prohibit you to go get a cow that had fallen in the ditch. You could legally go get it. And so they were saying, you can't heal on the Sabbath, but I can go get a cow. And he's, he's trying to get them to understand that you're placing more value on this cow than on me healing this whole person. What kind of ridiculousness is this? And this is brought up later in this chapter, in chapter 7. They sought to kill him. But why did they seek to kill him? Because though they had the scriptures, they did not have understanding. Because the carnal man is at odds with God. And the carnal mind cannot receive the things of God. It can't understand them because carnal mindedness is enmity against God. The natural man cannot receive the things of the flesh. We're going to get into that a little more. Verse 2 says the feast of tabernacles was at hand. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles, if you don't know, is a Jewish custom. If you want, to, uh, you can go look it up on your own. Uh, verses for this are Leviticus 23, verse 34 through 36. Uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 16, verse 13. Numbers 29, verse 13 through 38. And Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 14 through 18. You can go and look up the Feast of Tabernacles. This feast was one of three feasts that every Jewish male who believed in Yahweh, who served Yahweh, went up three times a year to one of these three feasts. Amen? Feast of Tabernacles, uh, the, the uh, Passover, and I can't remember the other one ever, okay? Huh? Unleavened bread, yes. But those three feasts are the feasts that every Jewish male had to go up to Jerusalem and offer sacrifice. Verse 3. I want to get into this just a little bit. Verse 3, it says, His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself 
to the world. I want to note a few things that they say here. If thou do these things. Notice the brother's terminology. If thou do these things. Okay? If. Which leads me to understand that they actually haven't seen Jesus perform a miracle. They just heard claims. And now they're putting him to the test. They're wanting him to show him, show them, go prove yourself and go into Jerusalem like we know that the Messiah is supposed to do. He's supposed to have this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Go do that. I want to deal with one thing first. It says these are Jesus' brethren. According to Matthew 13, verse 55, and Mark 6, verse 33, Jesus had four natural half-brothers, sons of Joseph and Mary. Okay? These brothers are James, who wrote the book of James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, or Jude, who wrote the other epistle right before Re Revelation. Judas and Jude are nearly the same word in Hebrew. Synonymous, you can mix the spelling, people do it all the time. Just like Joseph or Joseph, okay? The English translation of the same word, okay? English translation of the same word. Jude and Judas are an English translation of the same Hebrew name. Same name. The book of Jude written by Jesus' brother. I want to go look at it just for uh, your benefit, okay? Jude I always love saying this. Chapter 1. You like that too, don't you, Mike? Now I want you to notice how we know that this is Jesus' brother. Look at what he says. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Now, if you flip over to the book of James, I want to show you. James, right after Hebrews, in case you want to know. <clears throat> this same James. This James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ of the twelve tribes scattered abroad. We know emphatically that James, the brother of Jesus, ended up being an, a, a leader in the church of Jerusalem. This James is the James that's mentioned in Jude. Jude is James' brother. Therefore, Jesus' brother. Finally, people make a 
big stink about this and they go, oh man, why are you trying to prove that point? Because it's important for you to understand that there's only one person to worship and it's not Mary. It's Christ. Okay. Now surely Mary was blessed of the Lord and anointed to bring out the Messiah. That's true. But Mary is not to be worshipped. No more than any of the apostles are to be worshipped. The first commandment still applies. I am the Lord thy God and I, thou shalt have no other gods before me. How do we know that you worship a God? It's who you pray to. Prayer in the Old Testament showed your devotion to that God. If you were a follower of Baal, you went to the temple of Baal and you prayed to Baal. If you were a follower of Molech, you went to a temple for Molech and you prayed to Molech. If you were a follower of Asherah, you went out to that Asherah pole and you prayed. But if you were a follower of Yahweh, the only true and living God, you prayed to him and to him alone. There is no other. He said, I am God in heaven, and there, beside me there is no other. Period. So let's get to the second half of this verse and the, and the fourth verse. They wanted Jesus to come to Jerusalem openly and messianically. They are hoping that Jesus would go into Jerusalem as the conquering king, Declare that he's the Messiah. Declare that right then. Problem with that is, one that Matthew Henry sees in his commentary is that Jesus knew there was other work that had to be done before that. So he couldn't let God's timetable get messed up. Jesus didn't come down here to operate on his own timetable. He couldn't just leave one thing to go do another. He had to finish and in this area and go back over to this area. Jesus, even when he was going back to Galilee, said, I must needs go through Samaria. Why? Because in Samaria, there was a woman at a well that needed to meet the Christ. And there was a whole town called Sychar that needed to hear the testimony of this woman who would eventually lead them out to this well so that they could see this Christ for themselves. Chapter 5 of John. Amen. Jesus was on a time schedule. Matthew Henry says that all of Jesus' moments were precious. And they all had work that were allotted to them. Jesus wasn't walking around haphazardly just doing things. He knew where he had to go. He knew who he had to minister to. He knew who he was after. How do I know that? Well, there's no other explanation when you understand that Jesus came in to that pool of Bethesda where the Bible says that there lay a multitude of sick and lame and infirm people. It says there's a multitude of them in there. But Jesus only came in and healed one man. Do you understand how that flies in the face of modern preaching? Oh, Jesus wouldn't walk away from any of them, but he did. Yeah. 
He walked into that pool of Bethesda where there was multitudes laying on the ground. He saw one man, knew that man had been there for 30 years, knew that that man was uh, wanting to get in that water and trusting in that water. And he came up to him and he said, take up your bed and walk. And he walked out. Not one other person out of that multitude got healed that day. Not one. There's no other explanation other than Jesus came there that day for that one man and then he left. Because that one man's testimony is what we're talking about here. Because he healed that man on the Sabbath day. And here in chapter 7, verse 1, we understand that they still sought to kill him for that. For healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath. You see the problem with the thought that, oh, if they just see a miracle, if they just hear the truth, they'll believe. But you don't understand the depth and the corruption that sin has brought to human beings. You don't understand that it has separated their mind, heart, and soul from God. That even with the truth standing right in front of them, even with the truth speaking the very words of life to them, they were like deer in headlights and had no clue. Why? Because these things are spiritually discerned. The natural man does not understand them. The natural man will not comprehend them unless God intervenes. His brothers are stuck there. They're probably talking about the other disciples that are not present with them. Possibly those who walked out on him. Notice what they say in verse 4. He says, uh... No, in verse 3, it's verse 3. That thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. What disciples is he talking about? Well, we know that most people have already abandoned him, right? We know that from chapter 6, verse 66. It says, from that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Many of his disciples already abandoned him. So his brothers are working this out in their own mind. Look at how their brothers are working this out. Their brothers are going, look, everybody's left you. Why don't you just openly say, I'm the Messiah, and go up to Jerusalem in this triumphal entry. And those people that left you, oh, they'll come back. Problem with that thought is, Jesus told the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember the rich man and Lazarus? The rich man died and he went to hell. Lazarus died and he went to heaven because Lazarus was a beggar. And the rich man was very rich. He went to hell. At, the moral of this story isn't that rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven. The moral of the story is the rich man didn't think about the poor man at all while he was on earth. And then the other moral of the story is this. Because it ends like this. He says, uh, the rich man in hell, he said, Father Abraham, send Lazarus back so he can tell my family 
not to come to this place. What did he say? He said, if they did not believe Moses and the prophets, they will not believe just because they see the dead raised. You see, a miracle isn't going to make everyone believe. But he who has ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to receive, he will believe. And the only way to get any of that is but God. They probably are talking about these other disciples. Jesus did all of his teaching and public preaching in public. He never taught in secret, okay? This is, this is basically what they're implying. They're implying that he's trying to be too secretive. But what they don't understand is what he is going to tell them in verse, what is it, verse 6? My time is not yet come. You see, the natural man is always wanting to be ahead of God. God, let's just skip this and go to the blessing, right? Uh, can, can I skip the part where I got all these physical ailments? Can I skip the part where I got to lose family members? Can I skip the part where I, I, I got to go through this hardship or that hard? Can I just skip that and get to the end of this thing? And Jesus is looking at him going, no. My time is not yet come. And that's hard to hear when you're in the middle. Look, if you think God is all about saving your car or saving your boat, go read what happens to Paul when he's on his way to Rome. And an angel of the Lord appears to him and says, Hey, Paul, take heart. Everyone on this ship is going to live, but I'm wrecking this boat. What if you woke up one morning, you got in the car with the kids, and an angel of the Lord showed up and said, hey, I want you guys to be of good cheer. Everybody's going to live, but I'm wrecking this car. What if he did? That's what he did to Paul. That's what he did to those men on that boat. He said, hey. All of you guys, you're going to live, but I'm wrecking this boat. I'm going to wreck. This ship is going to wreck. Angel told him that. Modern day Christians would be like, oh no, I, I don't receive that. Problem is, it wouldn't have mattered if they said that or not. Because once God said this is going to happen, guess what? That boat was wrecked. Modern Christians would be petrified if God came down to them and said, Hey, Kyle, when you're an old man, they're going to lead you to places you don't want to go. And you're going to give your life. You know what modern Christians would do automatically? Oh, no, I don't receive that. I'm buying that. I, that ain't happening to me. Not realizing that this is a blessing of God to die in service for the faith and the gospel of Christ. But we would try everything we can not to go through it. 
We'd pray against it. We'd speak against it. Oh, no, that can't be right. God only gives good gifts. Yep, and the goodest gift he ever gave was eternal life. It don't get any better than that. Healing doesn't come anywhere close to eternal life. Uh, 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 financial blessings don't come anywhere close to the gift of eternal life. The gift of eternal life is the greatest miracle that will ever happen to you. As a matter of fact, it's the only miracle that will last forever. Because one of these days, even if God heals your eyes, you're going to get old and die and your eyes are going to close. But you'll still have eternal life. Even if God heals your body and you get a whole new leg. One of these days you're going to get old and die. And that leg ain't working no more. But guess what? You still got eternal life. There's only one thing that Christ came to give us that lasts forever. And that's eternal life. Will there be a day when we have no more sickness? No more pain? No more sorrow? No more hunger? Yes, in heaven. That's what it says. They shall hunger no more. Neither shall they thirst anymore. And God shall wipe away every tear from their eye. That's what Revelation says. But it's talking about heaven. Jesus said in this world you will have tribulation. You will. Not you might. You will. So, so when, 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 when we're on our high horse talking about, oh, this person and that person, boy, if they just had a little bit more of this faith that I got, they wouldn't have to go through that. You better be real careful because one of these days you might be going through that same valley that they're in. And then all of a sudden you're going to realize it ain't you in control of your life, it's God. Amen. And you're going to learn how to praise God no matter the circumstance. You're going to learn how to follow God no matter how it feels. No matter what, whether you're abound or you're abased. Whether you're in plenty or you're in want. When you have are hungered or you're full, like Paul said. I've learned to be content in all things. But you won't get there with false expectations. You see, they saw him as a political deliverer. They believed that Jesus was the Christ only so that they, he would deliver them from Rome. Much like the rest of the Jews, his brothers did not understand his reason for coming, namely to suffer and to die for the sins of the world. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. It's right before 2 John. Verse 2, as soon as I find it, well, I keep turning right past it. There we go. Let's start at verse 1. My little children, these things I write unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of of the whole world. Wow. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. 
So you'll flip backwards in your Bible back to towards Romans and you'll stop at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to read verse 3 and 4. Uh, yeah, as soon as I get there, I was in Romans. Uh, that would have sounded weird. I would have threw all kinds of people off right there. For I deliver unto you, first of all, that which I also receive. How that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Now, if you read verse 1, you'll understand that Paul's talking about his gospel. Okay? Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preach unto you, which ye also have received, and wherein you stand. Notice that in the proclamation of the gospel, there's no promise of monetary, worldly pleasure. Notice that in the proclamation of the gospel, there's not even the promise of physical health and well-being. Why? Because the gospel is not about your physical health and well-being. The gospel is not about your monetary standing or how much money you got or how blessed you are. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus coming to save you from sin. And if all you want from Christ is stuff, you're coming the wrong way. Jesus didn't come to give you stuff. He came to give you eternal life. And if eternal life is not good enough for you, then the stuff that you seek is going to be your reward, and you'll have your reward, and you'll split hell wide open. The reward is Christ. The reward is eternal life with him in glory, with the Father, in fellowship with him forever. That's the blessing. Amen. That's the gospel. You can go to Isaiah 53 and read the whole thing. Over and over, sin, iniquity, sin, transgression, all throughout that chapter. Isaiah 53 is talking about the atonement of our sins. Amen. Let's go read it. It ain't, that, it ain't that long of a chapter. 53. Isaiah 53. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him a tender plant as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form or comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, it were, we hid as it were our faces from him. We, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he was oppressed and he was afflicted.
afflicted and he opened not his mouth. He, was, he is brought as a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment and shall declare his, uh, who, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people was he stricken. And he, was, and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, and he hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, shall he see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Now I want to, I could read the last verse, might as well. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoils of the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressor, and bare the sins of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah 53 is about the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Amen. Isaiah 53 is absolutely fulfilled in Christ and it is about sin it is about iniquity it is about your being at odds with God Amen. you being dead in your trespasses and sins and enemies of God God had to send his only begotten son to do this so that you could be saved from your sins and I don't care what anybody tells you this whole chapter is talking about the atoning work of Christ for sins. It says the word transgression, sins, iniquities over and over and over and over. That's the gospel. The gospel is not health, wealth, and prosperity. The gospel is your sin and my sin and Jesus Christ being the sinless Lamb of God, who is the Son of God, who came to deliver us from sin so that we might have eternal life. This is the gospel promised. And many today come to Jesus with wrong motives, with wrong ideas about what Jesus is, who he is, what he came to do, what the gospel is. Tell me Jesus wants to make sure everyone has healthy and wealthy when he tells them not to store up treasure on heaven, earth, on earth, but to store it in heaven. You tell me that Jesus is wanting to make everybody rich, but Jesus is telling us to give up everything and follow him. Let God be true and every man a liar. God's word is true, not people. I don't care what that charlatan on TV told you. Jesus didn't come down here to make you wealthy. He came down here to make sure you made it to heaven where he is. Because he went away to prepare a place for you. There's a reward waiting in heaven for all those who believe. There's a mansion. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop in that bright land where we'll never grow old. Why? Because up there. One day, 
I'll go and be with him. One day I'll have all my needs met. One day I'll be perfectly healthy. I won't wear glasses. I won't have a club foot. I won't have diabetes. But guess what? Till then, if my eyes go blind, I'll still trust him. If my foot goes crippled, I'll still trust him. Because there ain't going to be an infirmity that comes upon me that takes my faith in God. There ain't nothing that's going to come upon me that will strike my faith out of me because it was not put there by me. God gave me eternal life and no one, not death, not sickness, not infirmities. What shall separate me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus? Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors. I don't care what it looks like. They can have their fancy uh, 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 fake movements that say God promised them this and God promised them that. But Jesus said, be wary of men who pray in public. Be wary of men who give their alms in public so everybody can see them, so everybody can see. Look at me. Believe me, they have their reward. Like these men in chapter 7 and chapter 6, they come only to fill their bellies or for material or physical deliverance. Whether it be from Rome, whether it be from hunger. There comes a point when everybody who comes to Christ must come to see him as the Savior of the world that he needs to deliver them from their sins or they will not be born again period but Christ came to save people from sin sin is what corrupted us and separated us from God and Christ brings us back into fellowship with our heavenly father I want you to note verse 5 says the misconception stems From their unbelief. Their misconception of what Jesus came to do. They're telling him, go up right now. And Jesus, no, my time is not yet. Why are they telling him to go up right now? Because they don't understand the plan. They don't understand why he came. They don't understand that he came to save them from their sin. That there's more that he must do. And this stems from unbelief. When people aren't content waiting on God and want to get ahead of God, it always stems from an unbelief that God will take care of me, that God is in control, that God's going to work these things out. Paul told the uh, uh, Romans, didn't he? He said, he said uh, it, it's Romans chapter 8, right? All things work for the good of them who are called according to his good purpose. All things. Not just good things. All things. That preacher that gets on your nerves. 
That preacher that gets on your nerves and don't preach just exactly like you want, God put him there Amen. for your benefit. Then people in church that don't look at the preacher right, don't talk to him right, may not understand everything he says or understand his weird personality, God put you all there for me too. Amen. All things work together for the good of them that are called. To them that love God and are called according to his good purpose. That's the point. That no matter good times, no matter bad times, no matter whether I'm healthy or I'm, I'm sick, whether I'm wealthy or I'm impoverished, Christ is my Lord and he's enough. If Christ ain't enough for you before you get a blessing, he ain't going to be enough for you when you get a blessing. You're going to get that blessing and you're going to praise yourself for getting the blessing. You're going to wallow in that blessing and you're going to use that blessing for your own purpose because Christ isn't enough before you got the blessing. If Christ ain't enough before you get the blessing, don't expect that people are going to all of a sudden change when they do get a blessing. It reveals the fact that they are not seeking Christ for the right things. And believe me, I pray for y'all to be blessed. I pray God does great things in all of your lives. I pray for you every morning. Purposefully. But the reality is, God's still got a work to do in Roberta's life, and Teresa's life, and Mike's life, and Kyle's life. And one of these days, he's going to hear my prayer, and he's going to say, Kevin, I got something else planned for him. Kevin, I got something else planned for them. And I got to be okay with that. I got to be okay with the ship getting wrecked. Or else I don't trust God. Verse 6. There's a twofold meaning here in verse 6. I got to get back there. I'm in Isaiah still. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. Now, this is really important. Your time is always ready is a very important statement. Because many people will say, oh, my time is not yet come just simply means it's not his time to go up to the feast. He, he, has, he has a point in time that he's already planning on going up to the feast. And it very well could mean that, okay? But the context of this chapter leads to more than that, okay? Matter of fact, the context of this verse, the last half of the verse proves that that's not all that he's saying. And then the next verse emphatically proves that that's not all he's saying. So he very well could have had a specific time that he was going up there. But look at what he says. He says, my time is not yet come. But your time is always ready. Why is their time always ready? Well, some scholars say, well, that just means they weren't as busy as Jesus so that they could go up any time they wanted. That could be a natural explanation for it if we didn't have the next verse. If the next verse didn't exist, that would be a great explanation. 
that Jesus had an appointed time he was going to go, but they could go anytime they wanted, which is true. Jesus was about the Father's business, couldn't leave that area right then, apparently. Matthew Henry kind of saw that in there. Now, what you also have to come grips with is what he says in the next verse, where he says this. The world cannot hate you. What does that have to do with anything about going up to the feast? If all we're talking about is timing, if all we're talking about is people not being very busy and they can go up anytime they want, this verse makes no sense. But if we understand Jesus is saying, I can't go up right now because my time has not yet come, you guys can go up anytime you want. Why? Because the world cannot hate you. Why couldn't the world hate his brothers? Verse 5, because they were unbelievers. The world loves its own. The world loves the people that look like them, talk like them, sound like them, hate, hate everything of God like them. Jesus, in John chapter, oh, where is it? I got to find my note. Hold on a second. Oh, yeah. Okay. John 15. Turn with me to John 15. I believe it's John 15. I'm going to find it. Or is it Matthew 15? I probably read through my notes. Yeah, that's the triumphal entry, John 15. I'm going to go to 15. I should be able to find it. If I can't find it, I'm going to make Mike find it real, real quick. Here we go. Huh? 15, 18? Yeah. Watch this. 15, 18. If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. Why? Because the world doesn't have a problem with people that are just like them. They got a, they got a problem with godly people. Amen. You don't believe me? Turn on the news and see how they hate Christians. Amen. See how they mock Christians. How, see how they... They, they try everything they can to shut Christians down, okay? Why is Jesus telling them that the world can't hate them? Because they're still part of the world. Because they still don't believe in him. Because they're still lost and dead in their sins and trespasses. John emphatically says, verse 5, they, neither did his brothers believe in him. They were still lost. That's why he said the world can't hate you. And that brings a whole new meaning on the last half, verse 5, where he says, you can go up at any time. Well, why can you go up at any time? Because they ain't got a problem with you. They're not trying to kill you. They're not trying to take your life. Why? Because you're not standing up for me. You don't believe in me. You're not following me. That's what he's saying. Now watch. But me it hated, verse 7. Because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. 
You understand the implication of the gospel is to first confront a person with their sin. Until a person is confronted with the sin that they possess that separates them from God, they will never see the love of God. Because most people, when you tell them God loves you and they're in the world, they're like, well, why wouldn't God love me? I'm just great. I'm the, you know, I think I'm the best thing since sliced cheese. Of course God loves me. But see, that comes from a false idea about their own self, their own value. The problem is they're not lovely in God's eyes. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that in, uh, is it Psalm 5, that God hates all who do evil. That's what the Bible says. He hateth all who do evil. So does God love the world? Yes, he does. But at the same time, because of sin, God doesn't love sin. And God will not send, first of all, God doesn't send sin to hell. God sends sinners to hell. We got to get our understanding right that Jesus is trying to jar his brothers awake. He's trying to tell them, look, you're coming to me just like those people did over there in Galilee where they were ate the bread and the fish. And that's all they wanted from me was the bread and the fish. They didn't really want me. They didn't really, really want to eat the bread of life. Why? Because they were laboring for bread that perished. Yep. Not for bread that didn't perish. And he told them to. He said, don't labor for bread that will not. That, don't labor for bread that will perish. But for bread that will endure to eternal life. I'm going to close. Many people speculate on John's meaning here of my time, but what is very certain is John's use of this phrase, my time or my hour in this gospel. When he was at, uh, in John 2 verse 4, when he was at the wedding supper of Canaan and his mom came to him and said, hey, the wine has ran out. And he said, what does this have to do with me, woman? My time is not, or my hour is not yet come. Right? I want you to notice that this phrase is even used over and over in this chapter. Verse 8. Go ye up to this feast. I go not yet unto the feast, for my time is not yet full come. In other words, I'm not going to go to this feast openly. I'm not going to go to this feast messianically to proclaim that I'm the Messiah and I'm coming here to save my people. I'm not doing that yet because my time has not yet fully come. Look at verse uh, 30 of this same chapter. Flip the page over to verse 30 and you'll see this phrase. They sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. Amen. Chapter 8, 
Verse 20. And I'm not going to read the rest of all these. I'm just going to read a few. These words spake Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no man laid hands on him for his hour was not yet come. What hour? <laughs> Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane the night he was betrayed. He had already supped with his disciples and he bent his head down to pray. And if you'll turn chapter 17 of John and the first verse. Jesus is in the garden. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes unto heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. What hour is that? I'm going to tell you it's about the sixth hour. Jesus was crucified and it said at the sixth hour that he cried out with a loud voice, Lama, Lama Sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he cried out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. What hour are we talking about? What time are we talking about? We're talking about the Isaiah 53 Christ who is going to the cross to die a sinner's death on your behalf, on my behalf, at the appointed hour. And he was not going to go to that cross any sooner than God had appointed. He was going at the right time, at the right hour, when he was supposed to because he came down here with a purpose. And that purpose was to seek and to save that which is lost. If you're lost today, I want you to hear the gospel emphatically today. That the gospel is not health, wealth, and prosperity. The gospel is this. Is that Christ Jesus came down to save sinners. And every one of us are sinners. There's not one person on planet earth who's not a sinner. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not one righteous. No, not one. But there's good news. Because God demonstrated his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The wages of our sin was death. Somebody had to die, and Jesus died in your place. Amen. Why did he do that? John 6, 39 and 40. So that if any man looks to the Son and believes, he'll have eternal life. My gospel should be the gospel that Paul preached in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. My gospel should be the same gospel that Jesus speaks of in John 6, 39 and 40. Jesus came down here to save sinners. Well, how do I get saved, preacher? You don't do anything you believe. Simply believe. Throw yourself to the mercy of God. 
If you hear his voice today, do not be stubborn and hard in your heart. If you hear his voice today, all you have to do is believe. What do I believe? You believe 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 and 4, that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to Scripture, that he was buried for three days and rose again according to the Scriptures. That's the gospel. That's what his brothers didn't understand. That's what they weren't looking at. They were looking at this man to deliver them physically from Rome. But Jesus came to deliver us from sin. A preacher, everybody knows they're sinners. No, they don't. You want to know how I know they don't? Because this is what comes out of their mind. Well, I know I sin, but I'm not a murderer. I'm not like that guy on TV that raped all those kids. I'm not them. You see, in most people's eyes, in reality, all those people are sinners and not them. They think, well, I'm a pretty good old boy or I'm a pretty good old girl. and I think God ought to just have some mercy on me. Trouble is, God wants mercy for you. (laughs) You must turn to Christ. You must believe in him. And if you don't, there will not be enough. There will not be enough ice cubes to satiate your thirst. When you split hell open. Because God does love you. God did send a savior to die for you. But if you hear the gospel today and you turn your heart away. There's no other hope. There's no other place to turn. Remember what his disciples said at the end of chapter 6? To whom will we turn? Where will we go? To who else will we go? That's the question. That's the promise. There's no other way. So turn to this Christ. Turn to this Jesus. Right now. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of your word. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that convicts us, that helps us, that convinces us of our great need for Christ. And I pray even now, God, that as we have heard this message, God, that anyone in this room or listening on Facebook or that listens to the podcast, God, if they don't know you, Lord, I pray that your spirit would minister this message to their very heart. That you would speak your words, God, that they would be born again. That they would trust Christ, that they would turn to him, that they would believe. That they would dedicate their life to him and follow him. Lord, I pray for us who do know you, that we do not become complacent. In sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. That we do not become complacent. In studying your word. In reading. And in prayer. That we don't. Find ourselves in prayer. And feel apathetic. And lazy in it God. But let us be devoted to prayer. Devoted to meeting with you. 
to being empowered and refreshed in your presence so that we can go out and share your gospel. Lord, I pray that you bless the food that we're going to partake of today. The fellowship that we're going to have, I pray, Lord, that you would bless all those who have come today and all those who are at home and could not make it. Lord, bless them and keep them. Make your face to shine upon them and give them your peace. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.